When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So there's a new documentary out called American Valhalla that chronicles the pretty unique collaboration between Josh Homme of Queens in the Stone Age fame and Iggy Pop for Pop's album Post-Pop Depression. Rolling Stone's Corey Groh talked to Iggy recently about the film, the album, and the tour that followed. Hey, Corey. Hey. So the documentary is named after one of the tracks from the album, and, and how, did, how did the album come together? What's interesting because Iggy decided he wanted to make a new album and then he decided who he wanted to collaborate with. And he had become a fan of uh, Queens of the Stone Age over the years and decided to kind of pursue Josh Homme. And uh, he, I think he'd first seen them on a festival in uh, Europe and they had to do like a photo shoot for one of the, the European magazines. And they were the only two that weren't dressed like, I think he said something like space monsters because Marilyn Manson was part <laughs> of it and, and Rob Zombie. And so he kind of bonded with Hami then and then they kind of kept up. And then he, Iggy really liked the, uh, the last Queens record, which was like Clockwork. And just the way that Josh showed that there was like so much of a depth to what this rock band could do. And he thought that that would be something that he could use on a niggy record and so he pursued him and uh kind of chased him down and convinced josh to do this which was kind of funny because josh is a huge iggy fan (laughs) right it was more like josh psyching himself up to Mm -hmm. believe that he could do this which is interesting because josh is a pretty confident guy usually Mm -hmm. the documentary also shows how much thought josh was putting into trying to find a sound that worked with iggy And, and i think it becomes clear why the album isn't just sort of like a hard rock stomping album. If anything, it's more like Iggy's Berlin period. And in the track American Valhalla, you kind of get the sense of what they're going for, which is like a much more atmospheric, much more sort of 70s Iggy thing. Let's hear a little bit of that that song. Now we'll hear uh, Corey Groh talking to Iggy Pop about making the album Post-Pop Depression and the documentary that followed, which is called American Valhalla. Why did you want to document this this album? Josh wanted to do it. I just cooperated. <laughs> <laughs> it was all Josh's idea. So uh, it was just, uh, there it was. We were, we were doing it, and then at some point we were doing it about doing it. If you see what I mean, <laughs> yeah, which was all right with me, you know. Mm-hmm. When you, so it's when you, a, it's a compliment on his part. Yeah, obviously he had a blast doing it. <laughs> yep, me too. I mean, does this album stand out to you when you look back on it? Does it feel different from other albums you made, or more special? I'm singing more, and uh, the uh, the range of expression. And also just the vocal range is, is a wider, you know, that said, uh, I'm aware I'm not Caruso, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> or even, uh, <laughs> I don't know who's the guy all the moms love. 
I care. Michael Bublé. That <laughs> <laughs> even. But uh, that's that's one difference. And there was a range of there was there was a big range of style on it. And uh, we I never ever expected going into this to for it to be a rock record. Although there's a little bit there's enough of that in each of us that it you know it rocks a bit anyway but uh it's uh it's more feeling music to me but it has an awfully nice groove so i put a lot into it you know we lived it i hadn't really lived a record like that since uh gosh maybe uh american caesar wow but uh mostly all my albums in the in the 60s and 70s was were more like a, a communal experience where you're living the whole thing. How did that come together with this one? I mean, you see it a little bit in the film with everybody, you know, spending more time in the studio and with the, you know the, the campfires and stuff like that. Like, how did you? When did you feel that 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 kind of communal experience this time? Well, you know, he Josh sent me a. At the, at the very last possible minute, sent me a couple of uh, just single note xylophone and guitar demos with him uh, accompanying himself on drums, just of uh, two of the ideas, the one on uh, that became American Valhalla and Break Into Your Heart. And right away, the, the two of us kind of got hyperactive and we started, there was a lot of texting back and forth that, about ideas that led to the lyrics. Uh, he called uh, the one that was American Valhalla just sounded real fresh to me. I didn't know what he might come up with. I'd heard, I'd heard the Desert Island, or I'm sorry, the Desert Session discs, and I liked all of them a lot. And there's a there's a big range on that. There's everything from uh, you know blues rock to uh, comedy to uh, sort of uh, reproed uh, English art rock on there. And uh, so he sent me these two, and I thought, oh, those are very creative. And the one with the xylophone, he called it Romans. But he knew in advance of that that I, I'm i a kind of a fan. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a Roman history buff and a fan of the Empire. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were throwing that around, and then he wrote me a... A text about uh, his ideas about Valhalla and uh, the fact that you had to fight to uh, get in <laughs> sort of thing mm-hmm. and uh, then I wrote him back about well that begs the question is there an American Valhalla if so where is it nice <laughs> how do you get in that sort of thing so that was before I even got out there we were already back and forth and on the on the other one he had titled Break Into Your Heart I could tell that was I could hear how that was going to go with a guitar lick and uh, that was one of those situations that happens sometimes where you work with a an, an, somebody sends you an instrumental piece but in their head there's a corresponding lyric and that's just what it is there's no root use fighting City Hall at that point mm-hmm. that's 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 it. It happened, you know. So on that one, uh, I kept trying to work around it, and uh, he kept bringing me back to the melody. 
and I had never really tried singing a melody at that vocal range before. I tried it. I was trying to talk around it for a while, and I tried it knocked down, and he said, oh, just sing it up there, motherfucker. <laughs> I said, all right, all right. I took a deep breath, and here goes in front of all the lads, you know, and it, it sounded good. And um sounds better by the time I'd sung that way for a few months on the uh, live version. So uh, I wanted a lot of input lyrically from anybody, and especially from him. But on the other hand, you have to sing. What you sing has to be true to yourself, too. So there was a lot of tailoring that went on. I'm, I think some people think of me as more a break-into-your-heart guy, but I'm actually more of a crawl-under-your-skin dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I like that. So, you know, yeah. So that there was there were those sorts of things to you know to take into account and and once once I got out west you know I just said look he said I'll pick you up at the airport and I said no no don't do that and that's because I knew he'd be fucking late you know <laughs> so. <laughs> Corey, in the next segment we're about to hear. You talked to Iggy about this song, The Pure and the Damned, which is actually from another project. It's a collaboration that Iggy did with 10Trix Point Never. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about that song and that act that Iggy uh, collaborated with? Yeah, well, 10, 10 Tricks Point Never is a, an electronic artist. He usually does experimental music. This is a little more straightforward song. It's a piano ballad, and uh, he just needed an Iggy-like voice. Um, as, <laughs> as Iggy says in the, the interview, I think that he'd kind of gotten turned, or 10Trix had kind of gotten turned on to Iggy through... Uh, a Danger Mouse collaboration he'd done for another film, uh, and Iggy, it's what's the great. Same way, the same way we all we all got into Iggy Pop through yeah. Danger Mouse collaboration. Yeah, and Iggy's just been doing all these weird things lately since he put out that record. Like he did a jazz thing with Jamie Saft, and uh, like he did that. And I think he's just trying a little bit of everything right now, and it's it's, it's cool. So let's hear a little bit of that One O Tricks Point Never song that Iggy Pop did with them. Actually, pretty cool. It's like a, it sounds like an Iggy Brian Eno collaboration or something. It's like Iggy singing over one of Brian Eno's <laughs> ambient albums. Totally. Anyway, so now we're going to hear another segment of Corey Groh's interview with Iggy Pop. And in this next segment, uh, Iggy starts out talking about how he showed up at, at Josh Homme's house to begin work on the album Post Pop Depression. Basically, I I showed up with a bag on his doorstep, and we just got in the Camaro and went out there and. I'm one of these people, you might have gathered if you've ever seen me work, like, as soon as I start, I want to get it all done now. <laughs> so, because is this going to be any good or that, or what the fuck is this? So we we drove a couple hours out there, and we just walked straight into the little living room of that little place, and I had, I had a bag of words, and he had it lot of ideas and he just started throwing them at me on uh, acoustic and electric guitar one after another after another and we we sort of knocked together the beginning of about five things right there wow. and and it sort of 
yeah, it sort of just went like that after that, you know. And then, uh, you know, as the guys come in, they, they hadn't told me this, but they'd done a little rehearsal of some of the themes on their own. So we were we were able to jam around a little, but mostly once once you begin to come to grips with, okay, which song are we doing and which part of it are we doing first? And how do we get this sound right and all that? Then everything slows down a lot. And you just you just knock it out a song or two a day, basically. And that's, that's the way it went. And uh, my, for my part at that point, they would play the thing partially or well or not as well at first maybe about 20 or working it out about 20 times a day for each piece i would say on an average and i would just sit there and sing on every take so that i got to know it better and gave me a chance to cross out words and edit melodies and that's what i was up to matt elders was lurking around taking pictures at the time and i didn't really realize just how good they were and that was a real uh that was a wonderful thing what he did and because he documented you know actual fun moments you know <laughs> and, and, or even thoughtful thoughtful uh-huh. moments too that i but he spied on me basically <laughs> i didn't realize i didn't know i was being photographed you know and uh and then the day andreas came out was a that was a good session, and it wasn't like a regular photo session. I mean, I didn't wash my face or anything. Uh-huh. You know, we were we were we'd just been in the studio all day, and he came, and we took a break, and drove out to a a very sort of strange old abandoned art installation that's out there at Joshua Tree. There were there are a lot of beautiful sort of abandoned wonderful ideas out in that place there's a sort of magic house from the future and there's a there's a wonderful uh, building built by a disciple of tesla's out there and we did all the things you know that you do in the desert like uh what do they call it now it's popular they have it in beverly hills and in manhattan too you lay on the floor and somebody bangs on it goes boom. You know what I'm about? I don't know. <laughs> I, I like, know I'm like, being like very articulate. <laughs> it's the sonic healing. They bang on um, a bunch of kettles or something, and they go boom <laughs> like sound bowls. Do you know about that? Kind of sounds like tonal therapy, maybe something like that. Yeah, right. We did some tonal therapy. <laughs> it's big in Silver Lake, you know. Now. So, yeah, you know. So it was, you know, it was pretty much. Just living it and feeling the pressure you do when there's absolutely nothing going on in your life besides that, uh, just feeling the pressure to try to make it really good, you know? You said you were kind of surprised that it was a rock record. Why, why do you say that? Well, because, look, it was like this. I've done these things before. Generally, when I collaborate with somebody, I don't expect them to bring what they're already good at what they do really well and don't need me for anyway to to sort of as some sort of free pass for me to oh I'll sing on it this time no you know so that's uh, Queens is a hard rock and group but I, I heard on his last record I heard this ballad master coming out you know 
Yeah. And on the stuff like like Clockwork, that was the stuff that really floored me on his re- on the last record. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, geez, he can do that. You know, and uh, I didn't really expect that he was gonna. He, he can keep his rock stuff for himself. He earned that. You you earn the. You earn your rock spurs the hard way. It's a really dirty business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, people die, people get hurt, uh, all sorts of terrible rip-offs and uh, uh, misunderstandings and challenges, and boy, you name it. And uh, so that's, I don't expect anybody to hand me that. So I knew we'd do something just different. I didn't know what it would be. And then once I heard the first two little bits he gave me, I thought, oh, it's going to be kind of, I don't know, kind of like uh, Chelsea Girls or something. <laughs> you, know? you know what I mean? That's what I, I always go, oh, it's going to be like Sunday morning, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but there was there was a little more to it than that, and he likes to, he kind of he got into this uh, kind of mid-tempo swagger on the stuff, you know. And had it all ended up with a really nice groove. You know, it, it seemed from the film that you kind of had to pursue Josh a little bit as a collaborator. What is it? What is it you look for in a collaborator? What is it that, that you knew that he would be perfect to work with? You know, it can be different given the occasion and what it is I want to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wanted to do something fresh for me, but I wanted it to be something that could and would communicate to the sort of to the appropriate, uh, to the applicable current music audience. That's a very particular thing for each sort of artist. And uh, he is a a valid current musician that, uh, you know, people listen to. And uh, so that was, that was important to me. And then basically the uh, taste and articulation and, and that I heard from the, the desert sessions that he was he's kind of open for anything i mean if you've ever heard Sh- shepherd's pie you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a basically uh you know sort of a ragtime comedy track you know? <laughs> you say, oh all right so that was that was kind of it uh in advance i just thought well this guy's intelligent and uh i knew he'd i knew he'd listened to what i'd done already with some uh, degree of interest so i thought just give it a whirl that was it basically you know sometimes i haven't had the easiest time anyone getting along in the on the business side of things so after a while you start to feel like the whole thing is it it takes on oh here we go cynicism time again (laughs) you know and then it was refreshing to see wow there are a lot of people who really respect and appreciate what this guy's doing. So, uh, you know, it's feeling. That's, that's the one word, ultimately, that's what's really, really important is the feeling. And then the rest of it, you get into, that's execution, and that's really necessary, too. But guy has guy has feelings. Why was it you didn't want to tour on this? Because I know you've been playing gigs this year. I know you've been because I've been touring a lot, dude. That's why this is hard, bloody work, and I just hadn't thought about doing that. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> I had I had thought, oh, I'll just do this as what it is, and then I'll go out and just do the what I do is a measured amount 
of touring anyway in a in a way that's um sustainable for me at my vintage mm-hmm. and and that that's great for me uh and I think I do a good job of it I'm I'm proud of it but geez, do I want to go out with this I mean he's a force Josh mm-hmm. you know he's a, and he's a handful <laughs> so it's like do I want to go out with this maniac and actually put boots on the ground and pay, play theaters and you know what if you know and, and have a production and everything and I'm so glad I did yeah so so glad I did because it's really it was a one in a lifetime result for me yeah both to bring bring that repertoire forward and to uh to get clean washed up and dressed nicely <laughs> and you know well well staged in a dynamic way and to play beautiful places where you know there's there's actually a toilet seat on the toilet in the dressing rooms you know that sort of thing you know we had a kind of a thing between us i think it came from something he heard in a couple of my vocals on things something like uh, especially mass production a certain way I was singing that he took to be like opera. So he would put his hand aloft like a kind of a Siegfried in, in, a, in the <laughs> ring, and he would say, we've got to keep it up there, keep it up there. You know, <laughs> it's opera, you know. I'm actually talking to somebody about, I'm threatening to do some opera in a couple of years. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, why not? That's awesome. <laughs> you know? Do you have favorite operas? Are you are there? Is there stuff you like to listen to? Well, you know, I really like Tristan and mm-hmm. Desault. Is maybe a really, really big favorite for me. It seems like you've been doing a lot of different things lately. Just trying to do like, like I know you did some jazz and you did the something with One O Tricks Point Never. It seems like you're kind of just trying to do everything right now. Like, like all. You know, it's just what happened is uh, part of it. Just people called. Mm -hmm. I'm approachable. Gosh, some of it came like uh, I did the the one-o tricks point never. I would suspect was probably uh, kick-started by the uh, gold theme song I did with Danger Mouse. Mm -hmm. The the Matthew McConaughey vehicle, gold Mm -hmm. and all. Which was like a last-minute job. They were desperate for a vocal, and I had two days off on a tour break, and I said, all right. But Danger Mouse had heard a song called I Want to Go to the Beach, which is on preliminary, which is one of these little quiet French, Frenchette mm-hmm. albums I was making when uh, when I could scrape time away from the original Stooges. So he... He knew what I could do. He said, I want you to sing. I've got a song. I want you to sing it the way you sang such and such. And uh, and then when that came out, it got a bit of attention, and I started getting calls for, I've done three since then, and the one no, one old tricks has come out. I think it's like, you know, if you're if you've got a Disney movie, you can call Elton John. But if you're indie, I'm available. <laughs> and the One O Tricks was just such a wonderful piece of music. So really, when when somebody asks you, and it was the same with the uh, the Jamie said Jamie and Steve and Bobby, the new Standard album. Yeah. 
the the music. They they sent me three tracks, and it came through an old friend named Bill Laswell, who's mm-hmm. like kind of a jazz bow, kind of not, you know, and a really interesting producer. And I I like Bill, so I keep in touch with him. And I've done things over the years, like. I did a buckethead thing for him, and I, I did a Burroughs thing just because I like him. Mm-hmm. So he sent he sent me word that these guys were looking for me, and they were. That's all he said was, you know, some good musicians. It's uh, it's not the usual thing. And, uh, what do you think? And I said, well, send it to me. I'll listen to it. I thought, oh wow, you know, I'd really love to try to uh, sing to all three of these and. It was uh, it was late in the year. I wasn't doing anything else. They didn't rush me, so that's why I did it. It was just a chance to try something a little uh, softer in attack and more exacting in approach. Although the vocals aren't a very exact, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I tried. Yeah. You know? <laughs> In the film, you know, when you were talking with Josh, I think you told him that you feel overwhelmed sometimes. Like, how do you deal with that? Because obviously you have your nice your nice home and all that, but how do you deal with that kind of feeling? I try to organize and compartmentalize each. each. I th- think, well, what are the elements that are conspiring to bother me here? So uh, I use, if it gets really bad, I'll sit down and write an essay. I'll say... Here's what I feel I'm involved in and what's bothering me about it, why it looks so, uh, you know, it looks so insoluble. And I'll just pack that away and refer to it a couple weeks later. Hey, it wasn't really that bad. You know, (laughs) I got through. So that's part of it. Um, Qi Kung helps a lot. I do, you know, Qi Gong, it's also called. I do a Mm kind of... A, a set of exercises I learned from a Tai Chi master. And um, I don't do them as much when I'm working hard, which is unfortunately a lot lately. But I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have work. Um, so I do that, and that generally makes me feel more fit and calm, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's pretty much it, you know. Just try to grapple with the details, you know, and not expect... The worst is when you expect an instant solution, you're not going to get one. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like you've, you've you've sort of gotten a hold of the agitation or whatever the, maybe the feeling was you had years ago. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I have just a couple quick questions left that are just kind of like oh, one's just kind of okay. silly. One is in the film. Uh, you, you you talked about radio execs insisting that you sing Leonard Cohen. Like I was just wondering what other sort of insane requests you've gotten like that. It was actually it was a. An exec at Virgin America, um, the guy, the guy in charge at the time. I don't want to name names, sure. but he was the big Kahuna, and uh, he did. I don't hear. There's no damn hit on your album. <laughs> you know, <laughs> now if you would record, you know, and uh, I got to know Leonard later. He's, he's a great guy, and yeah. really great talent. But this was, this was not the song. This was n- neither the song that he made his spurs on, nor the song for me. <laughs> and uh, so that that didn't happen. You know, we had a showdown, and I I finally said, just give me some money, and I'll record Louie Louie instead, and leave me alone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if, you, 
And they did all right with Louie Louie. They had a moderate, you know, some uh, they got some mileage out of that. So Yeah. Are are there other kind of insane requests you've gotten like that? There's stuff that just wasn't right for you? Well, there's a lot of it and sometimes you have to do one, you know? Sometimes you have to do one. There was a very funny one when I first came to Virgin uh there was a song for the film called Black Rain. And it was called Living on the Edge of the Night. And it had been written by the sound engineer. <laughs> and the director, uh, Ridley Scott, Ridley really liked it. And uh, they wanted me, the uh, Virgin said, well, Iggy Pop could record this for you. And then I said, well, I don't really, you know, I don't really feel that song. I didn't think it was right for me. And he gave me a call and said, come on, you know, give it a go. And I said, well, all right, I'll try it. And we went into the studio and he attended the session and I did my best, but uh, he already had Greg Allman on the tr- soundtrack and he kept going on, going to the talkback button and say, you must sound more working class, more working class. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, he's just going to end up using Greg Allman. <laughs> you know, Greg is working class, you know. Greg's got that vibe. That's not me, you know. <laughs> so uh, I did the song, and, you know, it didn't, it didn't ruin my life. And he ended up, he, he was looking for something to open the film. He ended up using Greg, because Greg is great. Greg is Greg, man. You yeah, know? of course. So that was that was funny. Yeah, stuff comes up, and uh, at one point between Funhouse and Raw Power, there were there was some sort of proposal to make me into a like a a, a teen idol or a boy band going around. <laughs> that would <laughs> that would have been the weirdest boy band in world history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't even imagine what that would have yeah. sounded like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, the original Stooges record, I think honestly if if video had existed as a as a commercial TV outlet at that time, the Stooges probably would have gotten a lot of exposure because we we had a nice visual and it wasn't it, it wasn't too nuts until later. When we first started, we actually looked pretty spiffy, and uh, and I could front, and and the songs were simple but carefully done. I think there would have been a, a larger audience for it than what it got, but that's worked out anyway because of the internet, you know. The last thing I was going to ask is just there, there's one lyric on the album that stands out to me every time I listen to it, and it's the "I'm nothing but my name." Uh, do you really feel that way? Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. I don't don't ask me what it means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh but I do. That's why it came out just kind of uh know why I feel that. But um that's what I feel it may have something to do with the game I'm in or the uh or the position that that game confers upon you. I don't know. Do you feel like you're done with rock records? I think you've made some statements sort of to that reference, to that point. Well, I was more that is more that I'm just I doubt I I doubted about the time I got halfway through this record, I just said, you know, I said to Josh, you know, this is this is going to be my last LP. I just felt like uh I'd done a lot of LPs. I'd done them indie, I'd done them self. I'd done them 
where they were bootlegged first and later legitimized. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I did them for me. I did them for the man. <laughs> so, and, and after a while, okay, I've done them, lots of them. And also, I noticed when the Internet started becoming more important mm-hmm. and different outlets for people to hear the music became available, I noticed that they weren't quite as reviled and poo-pooed as some of them had been. And then the ones that were considered just kind of okay, people started going, well, wait, actually, this is this is something. <laughs> and that continues. And so part of it is I have this instinct to just get the fucking, get the fuck out of the way of my own stuff. <laughs> just let it sit in for a while, you know? Do I really need to sit around scratching my head? I need to make a statement. <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, but if, you know, if I'm going through something personally at the time and I get one piece of music from One O Tricks Point Never and it makes me feel a certain way and nobody hassles me and lets me do what I want and I don't have some horrible weasel who imagines that his investment allows him to pee all over me, uh, <laughs> bothering me, <laughs> you know, then uh, then I can get into a mood and uh, sing something that means something, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just feeling like that sort of thing is a better outlet for me, or maybe the theater mm-hmm. or the opera, mm-hmm. things like that, even... Even doing the the radio show I do and just present other people's music. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah, you know. So for that reason, you know what? What else can I do? A Ramones cover album? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That sounds pretty cool to me. But <laughs> if you yeah, right. like it. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed in the film you said something in one of your interviews. I think with Anthony Bourdain, you said that it, it bothers you when somebody would come up to you and say that you you put out stuff that wasn't so good, but that you're good, and that you wanted to make this album that was maybe higher quality, which is kind of what similar to what you were just saying. But like, like, can you explain that a little bit more? Um. Yeah, in other words, I would put it this way. In general, I would say that the American, especially West Coast, rock with a capital R, no roll, just rock (laughs) ethic, tends to be, I would say, short on ideas, long on execution. And my favorite music often tends to be the opposite. It tends to be really long on the ideas and short on the execution. I think it was Bob Dylan who was saying the other day, uh, well, God damn it, yeah, when I made, and he named like, his greatest album that everybody, you know, went blonde on blonde or whatever it is. I was trying to squeeze 25 songs onto one side, and so the, you know, the sound quality is thin, blah, blah, blah. And there, there, there is something to that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, how should I put this? There are hardworking people in this world, mm-hmm. yeah, who want you to work hard on what you give them too. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. And so, you know, I didn't want people to think I'm just some bum who sits around and bleeds and collects a paycheck all the time. <laughs> all right. So, uh, 
you know, I think some of the some of that desire has been expressed in the approach I've done to my live work for the last about 15, 20 years. I've been doing consistent, good work live, and eventually it changed the word on me, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, um, people who hold large events started uh, looking for me instead of uh, looking o- away in horror. You know? <laughs> so, and uh, so I wanted to bring some of that into the recorded side of things try to put put my uh my two cents worth into something that was very very carefully done and also something in which i was challenged and for the challenge i needed i needed an outside guy and that's also where where josh came in Mm -hmm. you know you need somebody uh stubborn and opinionated (laughs) to (laughs) to tell you no not that this you know speaking of quality one of the other things that stood out to me about this film is there's there's one part where i think josh is saying that one of the shows you played you felt like the barricade was too far away and you wouldn't be able to jump into the audience (laughs) yeah it was berlin uh yeah obviously you want to keep the quality up and you do that like is that just do you ever regret jumping into the audience you like why do you always do that like how do you you know it looks painful sometimes that's why i was kind of curious (laughs) just keeping that i actually gave it up i did finally slowly give it up the last stage, I haven't done a stage dive since I, I played three nights with Metallica at a, at a racetrack, a huge racetrack in Dayefe in Mexico City. And I did what was a pretty tame one since there were so many people packed in they couldn't possibly get, they had to catch me. I did one each night. That was in March. I turned 70 in April. And I haven't done a dive since. So that was Corey Groh's very entertaining interview with Iggy Pop. And uh, I did want to say that we were shocked and saddened by some news yesterday that uh, we lost Chester Bennington. And I think Chester would have been really moved, I would imagine, to learn how much he meant to a whole generation you know they were a band that sometimes had a tough time with critics but it turns out for a lot of millennials they were really important i mean hasn't that struck you Corey? it's like people were really open about how much he in particular meant to them and and the 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 emotion in in his lyrics that i think older critics sometimes scoffed that turned out to have really connected to a whole generation you know right it's when you're growing up with something you know that really means a lot to you, but it, it, he, he's like I was. I think I was telling you earlier. He speaks with a, a vulner. He's saying with a vulnerability, saying very primally, and that's what really resonated with with young people. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be addressing that in more depth in a future episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. But this has been our episode today. We'll be back next week on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106 next week on Friday at 1 p.m. In the meantime, be sure to download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to us as a podcast. And be sure to leave us a nice review on iTunes or somewhere else if you get a chance. And we'll see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.